Hey, 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 you. Yeah, you. Put down your coffee and crank up your volume. You're entering the green side. Now here's your host, Taylor Mooney. Inside podcast in the studio today. I have with me a very special guest. I have Dean of the College Rebecca Byron. She is the Dean of Dartmouth College. She is also a, a professor in the Department of Spanish and Portuguese and the program in comparative literature since 2006. I want to welcome Dean Byron to the studio today. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thanks. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. So, me and you first met in New York City um, for the final Posse Foundation interview and for those who don't know to put it into context the posse foundation is a national organization that has a veteran specific program to the goal of the country interviewing vets they whittle it down to a, a group of 20 and those 20 people go to new york city and they do a final round of group interviews to compete for 10 scholarship spots and it's a unique interview process from the very beginning as you're doing group interviews you're like building like Lego machines and but they're trying to see how you work as a team together and I know that that threw me the first one I did in, in Washington DC I showed up in a suit everyone else was like in jeans and I was like maybe oh god I'm overdressed it's better be overdressed than underdressed but either way I showed up and yeah they told me it was a group interview and and I didn't quite anticipate like what it, what it would be. I'd never and, done a group interview. And you didn't know any of the other people in the interview? No, I knew none of the other people. And it was, yeah, it was just really, yeah, it was really, and not in a bad way. It was just like bizarre. I just wasn't expecting, especially coming from the military when you have boards or like a group, something, there's a lot of structure and it's very hierarchical right. and, you know, what's the question and what's the answer? And here they're like, here's around the corner, we built a Lego machine monster guy and we've given you the same amount and type of Legos in this bag. They wanted you to imitate what they had built? Right, and you could only send... I might be giving away their secret, so... Oh, yeah. But this is just one secret. I'll, I'll, the rest can re- remain secret. But they want you to like basically work as a team, and you can only send one person at a time, you can't take pictures, you can't draw it, and you have to replicate the exact same thing. And they're just trying to see and, and how you actually work as a team. Because I'm sure you, you know from just life... That you know, people say they're leaders and they're good at that stuff. Right. Speaking about leadership is not at all the same thing as doing it. Yeah, and and you get guys in there that are like, you know, barking orders or just sitting back. And so it, at first, I thought it was a little bit loony. I was like, what did I got myself into? But then I, when I left, I thought about it and I was like, wow, that's actually a really creative way mm-hmm. to see if what I'm saying is true. Mm-hmm. And so anyway, so I did that, and you you get. You go through the process. You do one. You do a one-on-one interview, and then they select whether or not you, what school you get to interview with because they have three partner schools: so Vassar, Wesleyan, and Dartmouth. And this is Dartmouth. We were Dartmouth's first year, but they they call you and tell you which one you're going to interview for. I mean, you put out a preference list, but yeah, so they choose you, and then you fly to New York City, and twenty of you fly there, and ten are going to get the scholarship. And it's also, again, kind of like a group interview, and we got in small groups, and we're mm-hmm. given prompts, mm-hmm. um, stuff like that. But for me, it was funny because, you know, you, there's a lot of you know a lot of pressure. You want to do well, 
And then, you know, like you were there. So the dean of the college is here. The dean of admissions was here. Like the admissions officer who does veterans. And one of the undergraduate, undergraduate deans. deans. You're like, oh my God, oh, these are all deans. Like, uh-oh. Like I've really got to be on my, my game here. Did you know who we were going to be, who, who would be the Dartmouth team before you went into that interview? No idea. I had no idea at all um, who you guys are going to be. And so um, none of us did. And so then, um, yeah, none of us knew. Actually, I, I joke with you know, my friend Ben, who's also here, he showed up and he was the only one not in a suit. And I remember, I remember that because, you know, you start doing this mental calculus in your head about <laughs> people who you don't, don't think quite have it. Right. And I thought, I was like, this kid couldn't even show up. You thought that because of what he was wearing. I was like, he didn't even show up in a suit. Like how you mm. want to, you want a scholarship to an Ivy League school? You can't even put out a jacket on. Come on, man. Well, now that we're really good friends, he was still in the Marines and had to organize all this crazy stuff and get senators to allow him to leave Okinawa. That's right, I remember that. Yeah, and like, there's a lot, of, like, so he's still in the Marines and all his suit stuff and all his clothes, really, were packed in a storage unit somewhere else. So he wasn't even going to North Carolina. He was, you know, flying straight to D.C. or where, New York City. So, now that I know that, it's like, oh, well, that makes sense. And also, you can respect the fact that he was adaptable and had confidence yeah, no, for totally. that experience even though he probably noticed himself he was the only guy not in a suit yeah no absolutely yeah I'm sure he did and that has to like be unsettling <laughs> um, but I always joke with him that yeah you were the first person I mentally canceled out and, and here you are and here you're one of my, my better friends here but anyway so we, we met there and also for me my flight was delayed I then got a taxi from the airport. I got stuck in a wreck in New York City. I was running late. I got to my hotel at 3 p.m. Oh, wow. And the interview was at 3.30 p.m. Mm-hmm. So I rushed upstairs. I had a suit. I, had to, I brought a mobile steamer with me because it was folded up. I was steaming my suit, trying to shower. <laughs> I had a migraine. I, I had a migraine. I felt all, I hadn't eaten oh. all day. I like, and it was, it was raining. It was pouring rain. Yep. So I remember holding my umbrella in one hand and... I had my phone for GPS in the other and I'm, I'm walking and I'm just, I feel awful. And there was a Dunkin' Donuts and I went in there and I was like, I need a, a bagel. Don't toast it. Just give me a bagel. Like, like, a, like I'm an animal. You were just, just going to scarf bread. that down and head on over to Wall Street, which is where the office is. Yeah. It's literally on, it's literally on Wall Street. <laughs> right. And so I am eating that, trying to hold a phone, trying to hold my umbrella because it is pouring. My whole right side got soaked. My GPS took me the wrong direction for a bit, like it t- or I didn't read the GPS right, however you want to <laughs> think about it. And I, uh, so I got there literally at 3.30 on the dot. And I remember um, one of the posse trainers was there and she's like, hey, Taylor, like, you know, hey, like, maybe you should go to the bathroom and dry off a bit because you're like, so, I was like, yeah. So my head was pounding during this stuff. I'm trying oh, no. to think about stuff to say to you guys that sounds like just one, like, articulate and just somewhat intelligent and I think I was in a small group with you and I said something and then we had a break and they have like those snack tables Mm -hmm. like cheese and grapes or something and I was like scarfing down so I hadn't (laughs) eaten really so I was scarfing it down and I think and then you came up and I'm like oh you know you're the dean of the college you came up and you said something to me that you liked or something about something I said in a small group Mm -hmm. and I was like delirious at this point I had no idea what you were referring to but I played along I was like oh absolutely I think that's really important for campus life I didn't I I couldn't remember anything I'd said Taylor I thought we were having a genuine melding of the minds I know we have since then (laughs) that bonding experience yeah for for me in that moment I just was like I hope 
she doesn't ask me follow-up questions about what I said mm. because I don't know anything I've said today so far. I'm so like out of it, but I was just trying, I had like crackers in my mouth and I was like, oh yeah, okay, like, thank you. So that was my like post interview. So like, God, I hope that went well because I don't even know That's funny. the things that I said. It's like, very different from my experience of that interview. I imagine, yeah. Yes. What is, yeah, what's it like on your end? So our team, this that was the, as you said, that was the first year that Dartmouth participated in um, the Posse Vets program. So we also didn't know what to expect other than the broad outlines of how Posse organizes the recruitment of students. Mm-hmm. Um, we had signed on to the program and we knew that Posse would be bringing us 20 students um, and that we'd have to choose 10 together from that group. But the learning curve for us was really steep as well because our group, as you said, was uh, the dean of the college, the dean of admissions, an admissions officer, and another undergraduate advising dean. We four had never worked together on any project. Interesting. (laughs) So when we showed up, we had looked at all of the 20 students' applications together and this is different from the regular admissions process because you're not individuals applying to Dartmouth. Mm-hmm. When when students go through that process, there's a whole pipeline, streamlined kind of workflow for receiving the applications, reading them, processing them, scoring them, and then they go into another process of organization of um, different pools of types of students, right, right. To, to compose the class. And the uh, contract with the Posse Foundation is completely different. We know we're going to accept 10 of these students. That's the agreement. So we get the 20 and we have to choose among them. And the admissions director has never done admissions this way. Right. I have never worked in admissions before. Um, So the four of us coming to have this experience with Posse was probably just as surprising to us as it was as the whole process was to you in terms of group interviewing. Um, for a selection. And so what I found that I was doing in the group meetings was mostly focusing on individuals and how well I thought the individual applicants would match or or fit in with the um, quality and type of education that we offer in liberal arts at Dartmouth. Hmm. And I suspect the admissions officers were trying to assess you through the active group interview process for the same things that they assess on the essays and the um, traditional application process, which would be very difficult because it's a translational exercise, Hmm. right? And then, so we went, it's a four-hour group interview, and and we as Dartmouth representatives participate in all the small group work, Mm -hmm. almost all of it. There are some things where the teams were doing problem solving or making up pitches to the president for urgent contemporary crises in in, um, international politics, and we walked around and observed how the groups functioned as groups. Um, I hadn't been given sort of a template for evaluating group interaction, and so after the interview, the Dartmouth team meets with the Posse Foundation team, and we process all of our observations together, but we hadn't been given a set of guidelines to use. So it was just really interesting to see how all of those different perspectives and values for how you best select students for an elite educational experience should be done. I mean, Hmm. it felt like a big learning experience and experimental. 
right. at the same time. Was there a lot of, obviously you can't talk about the, you know, the secret sauce of the back room of what we know what you're actually talking about and what's going, but is there a lot of pressure? We're talking about what you were wearing. Did you, see, <laughs> no. did you see he wasn't even wearing a sport coat? Yeah. So the Ben thing never, uh, for us was not an issue that's never disappointing. came up. I yeah, wanted I it to come I, I wanted to yeah. tell him that it, he, he almost lost, lost it because of he that. He lost 10 points because of that. Yeah. No. Dang. Not true. Never oh, well. mentioned. So cuz could I've shown up in jeans and a t-shirt without a like I'm just curious. From from my point of view that wouldn't matter at all. Right. That makes sense. Okay. So I mean did you find that there was a lot of I guess when you go back there you you then discuss obviously who's going to get it cuz you guys decide on the the day or the next yep. day and it's the list is settled. This isn't like a week of or two weeks or hey we'll meet again another week to talk about it so posse the 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 service they provide is the long-term um kind of training or orientation that they do in the multiple meetings or encounters they would have had with each of you right. it lasts almost a year right mm-hmm. from your first contact with them to that december interview had it gone from about january or february in <laughs> 2015 to december 15 yeah, just about. I think I got on right at the end, but oh, yeah, okay. for, for a lot of people, it, it was like well, they've been in this pipeline for a very long time. For me, it's probably like six months, but yeah, it's still a good chunk of time. It's a where multiple months, yeah, absolutely. engagement with the Posse Foundation. So, what the foundation says is that when they present those twenty candidates, any of them from Posse's point of view should be an ideal candidate for um, admission to Dartmouth, and. And that our task in choosing the 10 is to choose the strongest group, not only as individual scholars, but as a group that can support each other. And that's the whole point of the Posse Foundation. Right. They send students as groups because um, in the traditional Posse Foundation, it's for students coming out of high school to get into elite institutions of higher ed who may not have been able to past the regular admissions process because of all kinds of under-resourced issues in their high school experience. But as individuals, they're fully capable, academically talented, and if they come as a group to college, then the specific issues they face or challenges they face because of their background can get mitigated by their group. Right. And so since Posse, that's the whole foundation of the way Posse thinks, they're kind of guaranteeing that all of you as individuals would be successful and our task is to get the strongest group together when we do the admissions choice that's interesting so i guess sometimes when you're considering somebody you or not every time when you're considering somebody you have to figure out would they mesh Mm -hmm. with the group as a whole because some people might individually be high performers but maybe they don't that's right. Work well with others. I don't say we don't work well with others, but aren't as good as working well with others. Um, that's right. A, that's very interesting. Um, so for me, I know something that I was worried about is previously I didn't have the most stellar grades. High school grades, I don't know, I had two, eight, mm-hmm. maybe. I had a really good ACT score from high school, but my GPA was not stellar. And then I had gone on to the Naval Academy for two years where, you know, I was battling the brain injury stuff. So, you know, there was, might've been a reason there, but nonetheless, I did very poorly there. I I had a garbage GPA there. Mm -hmm. But since then I had gotten into Northern Virginia Community College as well as a night program at George Washington University. And I'd had straight A's after that. 
so that was good. I had the most recent data being A's, but I was very, I was still very worried that they would see, or you guys would see mm-hmm. the the old academic trend and say, well, you know, he did do well at these schools, but the Naval Academy is an elite school and he did, not only didn't do well, he did ex- extremely poorly. Mm-hmm. What do we, you know, what do we make of that? And I think that kind of speaks to the posse whole person approach. I mean, one, you still have to have some relevant data that is, means you could be competitive here. You can't. That's right. Something recent to show. Even if you were bad in high school, mm-hmm. take a community college class or two. Take English 101 and an intro math course and just show you can perform. So we know now that you're there. But but that the whole person approach allows you guys and posse to put past prior performances that weren't so well into their proper context. Mm-hmm. You know, you were 18 or 16 and now you're mid-20s or what have you. You know, you're different. I mean, how much, I guess I really want to, if someone's listening, you know, like if another veteran or another person is sitting on the couch thinking about applying to a good school mm-hmm. and they're having the same thoughts I have, but to them it's a barrier mm-hmm. to reaching out and risking rejection. I mean, how do you, how do, I don't know, you, me, how do, how do you encourage somebody to say, hey, no, if you've got some recent data that's, that's pretty decent, like you should really seriously just at least put an application in, see what yeah, happens. Yeah, absolutely. Um, on the one hand, the Posse Foundation itself is the bridge for this problem because it's a challenge. You know, the the typical way that that admissions offices work is to rely on a whole person application at the same time that the hard metrics matter more. If you're you're receiving thousands and thousands of applicants, right, or applications, then the test scores and GPAs are one of the more solid forms of knowledge you get or you know quantitative knowledge that you get about the students and that you can compare them Mm -hmm. in some kind of at least the presumption is that that's an objective way to compare people and then other information like uh, high school counselor letters community letters and students own essays and statements and assessments of their own strengths and desires and and forms of curiosity all of that goes together in the traditional admissions framework what posse does is provide this value added service which is to force a focus first on the person and our institution's agreement with Posse is to say, yeah, actually for a certain cohort of students, this is a wonderfully positive way for us to select for what their experiences have been, which are not um, the same at all as the experiences of a traditional high school student applying straight into college. So it's not just that you've had time to go from 19 to 25 to recover a sense of seriousness or find your purpose academically. Specifically, it's military service being another form of education. So what the Posse Foundation does for us is that it helps us codify that or it bring it the, the Posse Foundation identifies people as vets who have used their military service as a form of personal development and education. And it comes in the form that traditional college admissions don't necessarily know how to recognize. And so for us, the Posse Foundation is adding that element, doing that P 
piece of it for us and then presenting us with the with the 20 students. Um, vets who don't go through Posse, Dartmouth has a really strong tradition of accepting transfer students who are veterans who apply directly to Dartmouth. Um, and th- that pipeline actually is also special. And Dartmouth has done, I think, a much better job of that than many of our peers. And this was started by our former president, Jim Wright, who in 2005 embarked on a, he himself is a former Marine, and he embarked on a very specific project of going around to military hospitals and doing the education that you just talked about, talking to people who are, you know, leaving the military for whatever reason and reminding them that their life experiences, their work experiences, and their education in the military is an enriching part of their record, and they and they should take that up in their self-presentation and not limit themselves to the notion of objective metrics that the colleges typically might rely on <clears throat> more than you would want them to if you want them to be able to assess your current status as a thinker, as someone who wants to pursue a really high quality general education so at dartmouth we have these two streams for attracting vets right one through transfer admissions and in in that case you since you're uh if you're a transfer student applying to dartmouth then your transcripts from your community college or other college experiences um are read very very carefully but even then, the military experience, the life experience, and how you articulate why you want to come to Dartmouth is more important. Right. You know, sometimes the struggle I have when trying to, to mentor people or, or talk to friends and get them to at least consider about applying here, uh, I I think a lot of people still just don't think that it, that it's possible it's still something that you know you had a connection so i think a lot of what you said is really important because so many guys when you you pitch the idea to them mm-hmm. they just they just don't they still don't see it as something that's that's tangible that's something they could really reach out and grab and then when i do try to encourage people something that comes up is well you know i've already done a year or two of, of college i don't really want sometimes depending on how it all works out you might have to give up some credits if you do yep. posse you have to give up all of them and i think many of us gave up a good chunk of credits i think i mean personally i was gonna graduate george washington university in like, like i think at the end of the summer or in december mm-hmm. and so and now i'm a freshman here so, so I, why did you it's a good question to do that so yeah I, I, I'll, I'll speak on mine i, I was gonna ask you like from a someone who's been in academia, you know, you can even speak as a professor, uh, put your professor hat on and, and discuss why coming to a liberal arts institution like Dartmouth is important. I can say for me it was important because I have actually have sampled a lot of different schools. I almost think I could write a book on the undergraduate experience because well, maybe you should. I might I, I might. I might because I started off at Indiana University out of high school mm-hmm. and I joined a frat and then um, I just it wasn't me I just really didn't feel fulfillment in that life uh, and nothing against the, that school I just wasn't for me so I enlisted and then I got accepted and went to the prep school for the Naval Academy and then I went to the Naval Academy for two years and then I got medically separated and I went to <clears throat> the community college and George Washington and so I've experienced all kinds of different schools. So 
actually, I did not in, intend and I was not going to apply for any more schools. I was in this George Washington program. I was just ready to finally finish college and be done with it. But it was through the community college where I was still splitting time and taking some classes. I got this email. Mm-hmm. I opened it and I'm like, oh, I'm not a veteran's college. I'm not going to, I'm not transferring schools. But then I saw Dartmouth was on, Dartmouth was on the list. And I was like, huh. And so this is a more of a personal anecdote. For me, I kind of had a bit of a chip on my shoulder that my past school didn't work out because mm-hmm. it was a great school. It didn't work out. And nothing, again, nothing against George Washington, but I felt like Dartmouth, obviously, is an Ivy League school, is a top-tier school. And this was my chance at a rebound or my chance to prove I could still do it. Mm-hmm. And so I was willing to give up the credits. I also was willing to give it all up because of what I think a place like this can do for me personally and professionally and that when I look back on my life an extra two years of college will seem like nothing that's right and I discussed with another professor the idea of delayed gratification mm-hmm. and some and and sometimes it's hard for people and still I mean still hard for me don't get me wrong I would love to be graduating right now I would love to be living even within a few hours if not the same city as my girlfriend I'd love to have the same friends that I had in Washington DC when I lived there it, it is of course tough to uproot your life and come to New Hampshire. But to me, it's worth it because of, again, what I'm exposed to here as far as just the classes and the professors and the caliber, just the caliber of professor you have is just amazing to, amazing to me. Mm-hmm. And the visitors that you get exposed to and you can just talk to and go to a lunch on campus. Like you're like, I can just sit down and have lunch with you. Like you want to talk to me? You know, like that's <laughs> like, I, I did one with Andrew Card, who was mm-hmm. George W. Bush's chief of staff, who famously leaned over and informed President Bush that 9-11 had occurred in that famous photo. Right. And I mean, he'd served generations since like, I think like Ford or something. And just to like, I get to have lunch with a few other people with him. And that's just one example, right? Mm-hmm. But it's like, wow, like that's, that's crazy. And then you can get that kind of thing. And also, I mean, just let's be honest. I mean, being at a school like this can propel you professionally mm-hmm. if you if you use it right. I mean, you can't just say, you can't just show up and interview and say, I went to Dartmouth and just sit back and cross your arms yes. and think you have the job. But it can still be a huge boost up. And for me, not coming from money and having a single mom and, you know, watching my mom work really hard, working all these night shifts growing up, um, trying to put me through a good school and, and all these types of things, I really wanted, I mean, she always encouraged me to try to go to a good school, not because we had a life that wasn't, that was bad, but there were better things out there and that perhaps going to a top tier school or pushing my, pushing myself academically mm-hmm. would be a way to where I wouldn't have to work all these night shifts, like an extra shifts and overtime like she did. And so I was kind of like that, that work ethic was always ingrained in me and that idea. And so when the Dartmouth email came up for all those reasons I just listed I was like you know what yeah you know what does it really suck to give up like all those credits yeah it's, it's it, it does I'm not gonna lie it does but then when I'm here and I get to just be on campus here and go to classes here I'm like no it's totally worth it mm-hmm. and and even and even some guys struggle because Dartmouth isn't in a big city right and it is very much an undergraduate 18 to 22 community that is very centered around Greek life and frats and sororities and nothing's wrong with that that you know I had that time in my life but I'm definitely way out of that mm-hmm. so at times it can be isolating but that's where the posse thing can come in but even with or without that for me I'm still motivated by the idea of making this work 
making it work well and then doing great things afterwards. So I really, I really don't get too bummed about, or at all get bummed that I had to give up credits or I'm here. Mm-hmm. I'm actually really excited and keeping that motivation has actually allowed me to do pretty well here. And that feels good to prove it to myself that I can have like a three, five GPA when I previously was doing garbage. Like, oh my God, I'm at an Ivy League school with like a pretty solid GPA. Like I'm not, I'm not dumb. And that's kind of what I want to get across to other vets too. It's like, dude, if I can do this, if my buddies here can do it, you can do it too. If that's what you want. And, um, and I, and I think that's always my biggest hurdle when I'm mentoring people is guys just don't think it's possible. Hmm. And I think the positive thing for me helped because there's all these interviews and they have this like, almost like this inside track in a way for you in. So you kind of feel like it's inside track or like a, well, it's very intentional preparation that takes multiple months. Right. And there's a reason. I mean, and I, I think they're being very successful in that method. Yeah. No, um, they, they've, they've done well. And I, I was I was curious what your thoughts were. I kind of gave some of mine and I can I can go on at length about why I think vets aren't at top tier schools. But do you have anything even just from an educator standpoint or just having I mean, you've taught sure. probably all kinds of different peoples, you know, throughout your whole career. Like, do you think there's something about the veteran community, why we're underrepresented? Is there something institutionally or is it something within the people themselves? Well, before, before I address that, I want to say that your your speech about the value of starting over in the first year of a four-year liberal arts education is um, a fantastic one. Mm-hmm. You, you touched on the two primary aspects of it. One is the pure intellectual joy and <clears throat> richness of being in a place that is actually accepted from regular society, the need to hold a job and that kind of thing. It brings a community of intellectuals together, or at least people who say they strive to be intellectuals, and gives us time and resources for inviting spectacular world stage figures and that kind of thing for all of us together to process however much we can all of that um, input and all those forms of asking questions and learning the disciplines, the academic disciplines necessary to pursue those questions in a concentrated way. Um, so that's the the what you know is the the aspect of undergraduate education that I think is the most meaningful and purposeful and valuable in the world. Um, the second aspect that you talked about was access to more opportunities for your future career, but not just your future career. Also, you know, 50 years from now, 40 years from now, what kind of thinker and actor in the world will you be? You will be a more powerful one for having had access to these specific resources Mm -hmm. um, during the time that you're training your mind and your attitudes uh, toward growth and leadership. And I mean leadership in the intellectual sense as well as in kind of the professional sense. Um, so you just named the two reasons. The idea about giving up credits <clears throat> is interesting. I mean, there's a concrete economic motive for many people to graduate as quickly as possible so that they can go into the workforce. Right. And there's no denying that a four-year liberal arts education like this one is – it requires a form of privilege to be able to enter it and um, engage in it for four years. 
Uh, we try to, um, this is a need-blind institution, so we provide scholarships for everyone we accept, such that we're, our goal is to provide equity of access to that form of education so that the students who come here don't need to be working a full-time job while they're here. Um, at the same time, we're not promising a direct kind of return on investment as you very wisely pointed out. This is all about opportunities and opening up the world for everybody. Um, <clears throat> when we think about why veterans are underrepresented in higher ed in general, and specifically in elite higher ed or elite liberal arts higher ed, um, this goes back to what we were talking about before. Many people join the military right out of high school because higher ed isn't right for them at that moment. Mm-hmm. And there's no natural reason that everyone should be focused on their curiosity and their long-term goals and their ability to treat being a student as a job when they're 18 or 19. Many right. people develop in different ways. Many people, as you said, the, the fraternity system at Indiana just didn't, it felt weird to you. Mm-hmm. Um, and that could be for a whole host of reasons that have to do with your personal development, your values, your family background, um, also the need to earn money right away. Mm-hmm. There are many reasons. And so it seems to me that specifically for vets, for people who go into the military as young people, using that experience to reorient their relationship to learning and personal development and growth and intentional um, engagement with open questions rather than simply going to get a job um, – is really important and it and it makes sense that there are a number of people who will be highly successful who are super smart who can become very dedicated to this kind of personal development in community in intellectual community and the timing is not traditional or conventional for them and so when veterans think of themselves as reoriented you know, after some military service or a few years of different kind of life experience, it's very important that they recognize that whatever the transcript looks like five years ago or four years ago is not reflective of who they are now. And who they are now is of great value, can be of great value to any of these institutions, whether they want to go to community college or a profession directly into professional education or whatever um that time of growing and being engaged in a lot of a certain kind of education right Mm -hmm. is a real thing It, it doesn't have to be considered black time or you know unproductive time and and i would hope that veterans think about it as a form of value that they can bring to the intellectual conversation. And when they code it that way for themselves, then the kinds of essays they write about why they want to go to certain kinds of schools will be strong. Right. Absolutely. And you, you actually said something in your answer that to me touched on really a piece of advice to be successful in any school. Really, it's anything you do in life, but especially school, you said treat school like as a job. And that's something that me and another veteran here have talked about at length is now that we've had this military time and had this personal growth and grown, both of us can come here and treat it like a job where previously we weren't exactly treating it so like a job before right. we joined. But actually doing that has alleviated a lot of 
pressure because if you get up in the morning and you take your backpack and you go to the library and you study and you go to class, you come back and study. If you treat it like a, I won't say eight to five, I'll say nine to five. Right. If you treat like a nine to five and you do what you're supposed to do, it actually isn't that stressful and you shouldn't need to be pulling all-nighters. Every time I've talked to another vet on campus, when we have pulled an all-nighter, it's totally us. It's totally because we got lazy for a few days right. or a week. It's a form of time management failure. It's not right. a valiant... <laughs> right, no, it's not a valiant last charge. <clears throat> Heroic last charge, no. no. it's absolutely not. And I think that's a good piece of advice for people that are... And guys that are going to the community colleges and then if they go on to other things, could even be vocational school, whatever it is, mm-hmm. treat that schooling like it's your job. Get up in the morning, shower pour a cup of coffee and then get in the library and if you work and then you're done by 6 p.m you can actually go and enjoy your evenings and not feel like and that's something that a lot of vets we I, I hate homework who doesn't i don't like it um well sometimes i like it if it's interesting but for the most part it's like let's be honest sure. a bit of a nuisance I'm like, oh god but if you treat it like a job and you do most of your work like you know like that treat it like it's a, your profession like mm-hmm. you're a professional you can have your evenings and watch whatever stupid Netflix show you want to watch and then go to bed and wake up and do it again. It doesn't have to be this. And every time I'm stressed with work, totally Mm self-imposed. Like it's not because, oh my God, like something about the school, they just, they just give me too much. Now they do give you a lot, but once you start getting the swing of things and figure out how you read and study and time management, it's doable. Mm -hmm. You know, treat it, treat it like a profession. And then I actually just want to ask you real quick, as far as like you personally, what, wh- why would you want to be the dean of a college? Because I, I, you, know, you read all these papers and things. There's always all these politics in school, and like sometimes I'm just like, wow, I just couldn't deal with some of the, like the issues and complaints. Because you were you did Spanish and Portuguese, and do comparative literature. So obviously that's like a passion for you, and you're teaching it and researching in it. Yes. And then what was like, you know what? You don't need to add to my plate. I didn't be the dean of the college. Like what? What was that jump? <laughs> and wh- and why? Right. <laughs> yes. So I don't think I would have ever moved into an administrative role like the dean of the college if I weren't at Dartmouth in particular, and if Dartmouth hadn't embarked on a very concentrated and proactive effort to shift student culture a little bit more toward meeting the mission of the college. Mm -hmm. Um, So this happened three years ago. The president announced this uh, pretty ambitious project called Moving Dartmouth Forward, the the president of Dartmouth. (laughs) Right, right. Um, And I'd been a professor here for, well, since 2006, as you mentioned. And, you know, quite honestly, Dartmouth is the um, strangest – institution of higher ed I've ever worked in. Um, Strangest in really wonderful ways that are uniquely strong and in some other ways that seem uniquely negative or difficult. And a lot of that has to do with points you were making earlier, that it's a rural setting. It's um, kind of, it can be isolating for many students from their communities elsewhere, the communities they come from. Um, It also has an incredibly loyal and active alum community who are devoted to the future of Dartmouth. They're devoted to um, influencing the administration to preserve the aspects of the undergraduate student experience that they themselves remember and value. 
And we have students who are astoundingly talented, smart, prepared, and they want to make their mark wherever they are. And so during the time that they're here on campus, they want to be involved in the college. So that combination of things makes this a special place. And when there are tensions about the the politics of resource allocation or what is perceived to be the college's attitude about student life beyond the classroom, when there are tensions about those things, the passions run really high. Um, Given that we have such a talented group of people here, and I don't mean just the students, then we have uh, outstanding graduate students, amazingly prepared and professional staff and obviously I think a world-class faculty, given that we have all these people on campus, it's, it, since I got here, it kept striking me as very distressing and compelling to think about how we could improve how we work together rather than kind of getting trapped in these tensions among really powerful voices and powerful needs. And so um, along with Moving Dartmouth Forward, Uh, The upper administration changed the definition of the dean of the college job. Uh, In recent years, it had always been a student life professional, and they decided to pull in a a full professor into the role. And so it seemed like an amazing moment to kind of use a lot of the research and theory that I've been working on in cultural studies. I work on narratives about violence, specifically in contemporary Mexican cultural criticism and cultural production. And the violence that all narratives actually enact. So if you tell a story about anything, you're having to cut out aspects of it. You're forming, you know, you're forcefully forming certain perspectives out of the raw material you're working with. Um, It's metaphorical violence in one way, but it's also violence to truth or absolute knowledge whenever you tell a story. Because you can't tell the whole thing because you're not God. Right. Right. So putting anything into language or into a narrative requires a politics of choices and manipulation. It's it's unavoidable. And so that's the kind of stuff I work on in my in my research and my teaching and bringing what I've learned over the years into the dean of the college role is very similar. How does Dartmouth narrate itself to itself? All the different voices here. How do how do how can we more healthfully bring them all into alignment about the core mission of the college. Um, And there have been a number of initiatives that have been taking place while I've been dean of the college that I'm in charge of, like the introduction of house communities Mm -hmm. is one of them. The introduction of the Posse Veterans Program is another. Um, There are a host of things we're trying to do to try to shift the center of all the, the the core that unites all the different narratives right. about Dartmouth, and and really, um, I'm fascinated by the opportunity to take concrete action with the community members here at Dartmouth to improve how we synthesize all of our different narratives as right. much as we can. It's interesting because I do a lot of reading of the different papers and the different opinions. And maybe this, this is just me talking. Maybe it's the old, the grumpy side of me, but like we're moving Dartmouth forward. There's a, like you said, there's a lot of tensions that run high. Mm-hmm. The, and this is just an anecdotal comment for me from what you said. You don't have to really respond to this, but I'm like, you know, it seems like on call, maybe it's a college thing. It's a young angst thing. And I've grown out of it, but it's like, you have to fight the power. 
you have to like fight the man, so, yep. you know, quote unquote. And I'm like, because sometimes I'll read reviews in like the college newspaper or blogs or whatever, and I'm, and I'm just like, that's that's your complaint. Like I just don't. And in a lot of it, and I think even from a veteran's perspective, complaining about a solution is an it, it just really grates at me and so when I read stuff and like because if I was in the military and someone just I mean we complain a lot mm-hmm. but if you want to officially like in an actual thing like complaining with your buddies is one thing but if you want to officially make a complaint and you have nothing to offer me as a solution or have have an idea then like you're wasting my time you're wasting our work time you're wasting our efficiency like I just don't want to hear it and so I just this is just me I get like personally frustrated just like when I read some of this stuff and I'm not, I'm, there's always room for improvement, right? And it's sure. good to have in dissenting voices. Yep. Uh, you don't want to just have everyone thinking the same, but it almost seems like to me, it's like you guys could say, Hey, we're going to give like gold bullion to every student. And they'd be like, what's well, only one block, not two. You know, it'd be like, it'd be like, it's like, <laughs> are you guys serious? Like what? Like really? And so it's, yeah, I've always wondered like, and that was a great answer. I've always wondered what would, possess one to leave their passionate their passion for research and their, their studies to take on the role and I think it's a very good reason I know moving Dartmouth forward sometimes gets criticized I mm-hmm. at least I've seen I'll obviously say I'm biased because because of that initiative you know my veterans program got to get here so obviously there's that bias there where I'm appreciative and I'm sure there's there's kinks in everything and there's criticisms about the house program and there's that too and I when I went to high school we had just started our house program. I remember the same thing happened, but everyone wants to be so critical. And it's, this is again, all my two cents, but the house program coming around, people see it as an attack on the Greek life system. And to me, it, I don't see it as that the Greek life system is pretty strong here. Like it's not going away no, anytime not. soon and it doesn't need to go away. There's a lot of no, good it things doesn't. it does. That's right. There's not a bad thing. But it's also not a bad thing to have an alternative. You know, if you never want to show up to a house event, then don't, like, fine. Like, whatever. But there's people who it can help. There's people who don't want to do Greek life who can have another outlet. There's dudes older like me. Like, again, nothing wrong with it. I don't want to join a frat. Mm-hmm. So there's a few events that I can go to and not have to sit alone in my room. And I mean, I have, I have friends, but still, <laughs> I have some friends. It's but not that sad. It's moment. not that sad. Sometimes. No, it's not that sad. <laughs> but we should talk later, Taylor. Yeah, we should talk later. Yeah. It, it's... It's not that big of a deal. Right. And I see all this stuff. So anyways, we could go on and on well, about actually, that. Actually, I, I do have comments about your, sure. your point about sure. um, criticism without solutions and the developmental appropriateness of that for the majority age of our students. They're 18 right. to 22. The I mean, my focus in my role is on the undergraduate population. Um, and it's absolutely appropriate for that group of people to be testing out their sense of themselves as civic actors, their sense of themselves as members of a complex community, which is also a bureaucratic institution. Um, They're moving from high school, which is for most people, you're a passive recipient of those structures and you just try to get through them as successfully as you can. And when you become a member of a college like this one, and not all universities work this way, but you're expected to contribute your best ideas, thoughts, and suggestions to the collective enterprise. We promote that, but it also means it's very difficult. For, and and I, this is a personal confession as an administrator. I don't like having people criticize things without giving solutions. It 
it's emotionally hard right, to get course. that endless stream of just bitching right. at you, you know? But <laughs> on the <laughs> other hand, when I think as an educator, that actually that's a wonderful thing because regardless of the specific proposal or policy, which we may or may not be able to change for all kinds of reasons that any given student who's complaining may not know about, right? Um, when we help educate and foster and nurture each student's idea that they should be an active, engaged, and proactive participant in making any common enterprise work better, I think we're succeeding. Right. So it is annoying and it's personally taxing to deal with that sort of thing, but that is the work of collective education in a a community. So on my better days, I think of it as evidence of our success in in having the correct focus on what we're doing right and this brings up something to me and this will be kind of how this will be my last little rant on it but i guess i do when i do see criticisms of stuff like the moving dartmouth forward because i i see it a lot i'm sure there's of course things that could be improved right it's it's like anything else in life but there's a lot of good things that come from it that no one emphasizes and no one emphasizes the fact that it is like at least selfishly since this is the theme of my podcast and part of my life, it brought this veteran initiative. I kind of pushed it for, you know, President Wright started it. So we had the transfer vets. But now you have this whole other thing where you're guaranteed mm-hmm. to have 10 new Posse Foundation veterans a year for a total of 40 once the four four years go through. So you'll be consistently having 40 right. on top of transfer vets. Right. So that's 40 more per year than we ever would have had before. Yep. And to me, this gets to a deeper thing. And people or Americans like to constantly say, you know, we support the troops, we love the troops, things like that. And it's, it's all just... In that superficial way. It's superficial. Yeah. And it's like, you know, if people here on campus, and I hear a lot, of, you know, there's a lot of patriotism, especially even in like, and from a Greek life community. Greek mm. life, people seem to really, you know, frats to me always seem like they have American flags, they love the country, American flag shorts, whatever, they're all about it. It's like, well, if you're really about it, you know, you, you can critique some moving dark my force stuff. I'm sure there's stuff to improve on. But how come no one ever talks about the good things that happen? Like, you get 40 new veterans who served yes and many of us were in combat and did thing you know and get to come here that's a huge positive and take up leadership positions on campus yeah right and take up leadership positions on campus and that is never spoken of mm-hmm. and the pauses are never spoken of and so you can claim to be a proponent of diversity or you can claim to be a patriot who supports the troops yet that was one of the results of moving down before was bringing in more veterans mm-hmm. and bringing in more diversity and no one really has anything positive to say about that. And I think from my end, and this again gets deeper, there's a, this societal thing where they like to be superficial about supporting veterans, but the initiatives actually do it, the hard work of doing it. Mm-hmm. They're like, eh, I would rather just put a yellow ribbon like sticker on my car and just call it a day. Yeah, but when you say no one talks about the good things, I I, I don't think that's entirely fair. That's, that's probably not. A lot of people do. They do. I mean, you have, a, you have the whole picture view. And I think of of you probably because it's your job here, mm-hmm. here all sides. Maybe I'm just reading the old. I just, maybe I'm self seeking out the negative articles so I can be angry and grumpy. Maybe that's what I'm doing. Could be. So there could be some bias there as far as like we all do that. My sampling. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's just something that it was just a personal observation for yeah, me. Yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah. But anyways, I appreciate you coming on today. I appreciate your time. It's a good chat, and I hope anyone listening got a better insight into thinking that 
a school like this is obtainable if you're willing to put in the hard work and do the things you need to do this isn't some way far out of reach concept you can mm-hmm. actually go to a good school and you can be successful at a good school treat like a job and do the things you're supposed to do and it can work out okay so i want to say thank you for joining us thank you taylor all right and with that you've been listening to the greenside podcast